Welcome to Cato Audio for April 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Gabby Beaumont-Smith talks about the Biden administration's whiff on eliminating solar tariffs. Representative Earl Blumenauer and Dr. Carl Hart discuss fresh approaches to overdoses. Chris Kemet of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund talks about a bizarre case of school officials strip-searching a student twice. And David Bose makes the case for a movement for freedom. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. If you've paid attention in the last few years of housing prices, uh, you would understandably believe that at least in some metropolitan areas, there is a crisis unfolding. Um, And in housing policy, we have seen pretty substantially similar policies in many states, but there are some standouts. And to talk about housing policy and a lot of the vagaries involved with it, Mike Tanner, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, also the director of the Cato Institute's uh, California Project, uh, and Vanessa Brown Calder. She directs Opportunity and Family Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Before we get started, Vanessa, you are back at the Cato Institute. Where have you been? I'm back. I've been at the Joint Economic Committee, so um, was on the Hill for the last few years and really happy to be back at Cato after a few-year foray. Um, yeah, it's been it's uh, a few-year legislative foray or some, something like that. Yeah, it's nice to be back. Well, we're glad to have you back. Uh, let's start here with uh, one of the many issues related to housing, because there is so much that is involved in housing. There's family wealth. There's the ability of people to sort of build wealth uh, by owning a home. There's race. There's location, segregation, uh, and and, a, and economic development, that sort of thing, all involved in housing. Let's talk about sort of a, a smaller issue within housing that is nonetheless important and instructive here, and that is short-term rentals. I have seen yeah. uh, recent recently lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and there was a failed candidate for city council who effectively, uh, one of his major campaign planks was, uh, I want to ban all short-term rentals. Uh, he thought that this was a bad thing. And um, I know there are a lot of people who buy homes with the express purpose of, hey, I've got a, a basement apartment. I'm going to rent it out as a short-term rental. What do people... In general, what do people think about short-term rentals and what do people misunderstand about short-term rentals? Yeah, well, good question. Um, You know, you mentioned there in Kentucky and D.C., there's also been a lot of um, debate, heated debate, I would say, on the topic of short-term rentals. Actually, a few years back, D.C. council, um, city council decided to pass a rule that would limit short-term rentals in D.C., and they're just getting around to implementing that now, three years later, um, and, but sort of the same idea. They're not, they're not going to ban short-term rentals outright, but they want to restrict them. They want to make sure that hosts are licensed. They want to limit how long anyone can rent out an apartment or house for. Um, and they want to make sure that, you know, people that have second homes or that aren't living in their homes, um, aren't able to, to rent out these short-term rental units to the same degree that they were in the past. And, 
I think that there's a lot of different things motivating that debate or that conversation um, or that motivated it a few years ago when this was being discussed in depth. Um, one of the things, of course, that comes up is housing affordability, and we can maybe circle back on that. Uh, people have also complained about, you know, how short-term rentals, maybe they change the neighborhood or maybe, um, you know, there are noise complaints. Um, actually, some of these platforms like Airbnb, HomeAway, and Verbo, they're, they're doing things to try to mitigate those issues that have come up, things like noise complaints. Um, you know, they're banning party houses. I know Airbnb has done that. Uh, most listings actually say that you can't have a party at the house or at the unit that you have rented. So, um, you know, the, the private side of the market is trying to deal with some of these issues and, uh, and make improvements along the way. Um, but yeah, I think, I think people do get some things wrong about short-term rentals. Um, they obviously provide a lot of value to travelers, but they also provide a lot of value to the hosts. You mentioned investment properties, Caleb, and uh, hosts definitely, uh, you know, often either they are, they have an extra spare bedroom or they have a basement, like you said, and they're able to rent those things out so that they can stay in their home, which is pretty amazing. Um, in other cases, um, you know, they do buy a property with the express purpose of renting it out down the road. And so having their ability to do that become limited um, sort of arbitrarily along the way, that's a huge cost to, to hosts, to individuals that um, are hoping to make a little money to, you know, bump up their income um, through the short-term rental market. So that is pretty sad, actually. Now, certainly there are some legitimate reasons for complaint from some neighborhoods uh, around, uh, certainly in D.C. and some areas that have heavily experienced sort of these party house type of things. But these have traditionally been handled through nuisance laws and calling the police. They haven't necessarily been a subject of legislation. Now, a lot of what happened here is simply the hotel industry organizing these groups in order to prevent competition. This is sort of just like the uh, the way taxi drivers organize in opposition to Uber and Lyft, uh, and and it's, it's basically just self-interest masquerading as community concern here in many cases. Exactly right. Uh, but let, let's broaden the discussion just a little bit here, because when we're talking about uh, short-term rentals, uh, we're talking about people being able to use their property in the ways that they see fit. And I, I think a lot of people have become accustomed, uh, you know, that we've had generations of, of people who've grown up and lived in neighborhoods that were zoned. And so zoning is a limitation on property rights, on the ability of people to use their property as they see fit. Um, Mike, you know, what has been the long-term consequences of zoning? Well, we should recognize that zoning has a lot of negative con connotations. Uh, it, it essentially started in a, as a tool for racial segregation, and it has devolved into an area that people can basically prop up their, their uh, home values by keeping people out of their neighborhood or keeping types of housing out of their neighborhood in order to preserve the status quo out there. 
We know it adds significantly to the cost of housing. We know that it prevents labor mobility. Uh, we know that zoning generally has been a cost uh, prime mover in the rising uh, cost of housing. Nationwide, we're about five, six million units short of what we need. Uh, and a lot of that is driven by the inability to build. Uh, Vanessa, what's the counterexample here? Because it, it seems zoning is everywhere, but of course, it's not everywhere, at least in the residential context. What can we point to to say, hey, uh, zoning isn't necessarily the end all be all of a happy community? Well, um, one example that comes up or sort of case study that comes up quite a bit is Houston, Texas. Um, I think urban planners have kind of poo-pooed Houston, Houston's um, land use development pattern for a long time. Um, you know, it looks a little bit haphazard. If you've ever lived or visited Houston, it doesn't look super planned and organized necessarily. But on the other hand, um, Houston has... Uh, much better housing affordability than most other major cities. It continues to grow and develop the, you know, it continues to build more units, bring more units online at a, at a faster rate than other major cities. And it continues to accept a huge amount of immigration. Um, you know, people continue to move to, te to Texas and have during the pandemic for sure. Um, and so that's that's sort of a counterexample. Um, although it looks maybe a little bit haphazard, it um, functions really well from an affordability standpoint, or it has um, over decades of um, over decades of growth. So, and it doesn't hurt property values either, uh, the way people believe it will. Uh, that, that's sort of a false narrative out there. There are studies out there that show that when you bring multifamily housing into a neighborhood, you can actually raise property values because of the amenities and services that tend to follow. Uh, that's, you know, where they, when they build a new supermarket or theater or small shops, uh, in your neighborhood, uh, to service the new people who are coming in. Uh, those often raise property values, make it easier to sell. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I don't know if you guys want to speak to this at all, but, you know, when you have a small kitchen, as people in uh, Manhattan and uh, and other large cities do where apartments are pretty small, you tend to go out to eat. And that tends to mean going out to shops that are within walking distance. And this is a something that a, a lot of people care a great deal about is a, a vibrant uh, community and being able to engage in all sorts of commerce very close to your home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, having a diversity of different types of uses all close by can make a huge difference for people. And especially if you have, you know, if you don't have your own private transportation, you don't own a car, that becomes more important very quickly. Um, and if you just want to enjoy sort of urban or city life, which you know, some people move to cities for that express purpose to enjoy those amenities, as you say, then that becomes very important very quickly as well. And one problem with the way that things have been zoned in the past is that they've been zoned in a way so that different types of uses like retail or commercial or residential are all separated. They're all in different places. And that's on, that has been a choice that's been made on purpose. So if you look at a zoning map, you'll see that 
you know, in the northeast end of the city, that's where all the apartments are. And then the southeast end, that's where all the single family homes are. And maybe there's a little circle in the middle, which is where the commercial district is. But a lot of people would actually prefer to live in an environment where, yeah, the laundromat, the grocery store, um, you know, dry cleaning, it's all walking distance from your apartment. And, you know, if you if you want to move out of your apartment and live in a townhome, you can move two blocks down and there's an option to do that. Um, so just that diversity of of use can be really enriching to city life. And you contrast that with the the consequences that come from zoning that are really spread across the board. Uh, zoning has a significant impact on poverty because people are unable to, to move to areas that have more jobs or better schools or lower crime rates. Uh, you increase racial segregation uh, in these areas. You, uh, you make it more difficult for businesses to move in. Uh, surveys of employers have sh- repeatedly shown that affordable housing is an important factor in where they locate a new business because you can't hire 20,000 new people if there's no houses for them. So all, all these sort of negative consequences stem from zoning uh, and there's very little gain. There's very little upside to it. It's just sort of uh, uh, preserving of the status quo at all costs. Vanessa, I can remember before you departed Cato the first time was uh, a, a discussion about sort of the policies that uh, were so similar between Cory Booker, U.S. Senator from New Jersey, and Ben Carson the uh, Trump administration head of housing and urban development. Um, The federal government really can't do a lot to uh, spur new housing in these local markets because uh, zoning is overwhelmingly local and state run. But what could the feds do to uh, at least not actively encourage this kind of uh, 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 the way housing is parceled out? Yeah, um, good question. Well, during the Trump administration under um, Secretary Carson, there were some efforts to try to see if HUD, um, Department of Housing and Urban Development, could get involved in um, at least attaching some requirements to the various different housing affordability grant dollars that go out the door. Um, And one of the rationales for that is just that, you know, the federal government spends a huge amount of money on housing affordability, and um, it spends more money per capita in places that actually have serious supply constraints as a result of restrictive zoning. So that doesn't make a huge amount of sense because um, you spend a lot of money in places that actually they they have tools where they could actually reform, you know, local regulations and laws in a way that would actually promote housing affordability, and then they wouldn't need as much of the federal grant money. Um, but they don't do it, and because of the way that it's set up, they can sort of point the blame, point the finger of blame at the federal government for not giving them enough. Um, subsidy dollars. Um, And that is not a great setup, obviously, to having effective housing policy. So um, in the past, uh, Secretary Carson did look at attaching some requirements to grant dollars. Unfortunately, it didn't 
ever really make it anywhere, didn't materialize. There was uh, quite a bit of controversy um, at one point during the Trump administration. People started to say, I think uh, the president said something about how this is a war on the suburbs um, and things got, the rhetoric got very heated very quickly and it didn't end up going anywhere ultimately productive, I don't think. But that is definitely something that people could consider, which is that if you are going to be spending money at the federal level on housing affordability, the least you can do is have some type of requirements um, on cities and local municipalities to have policy that supports that housing affordability at the local level, rather than just accepting grant money from, you know, the the taxes of the great American taxpayer all, all across the rest of the country and places that have better housing policy and have their um, ducks in a, in a row. So there has been uh, some talk lately about some bipartisan legislation. I believe there's a bill by Senators Young and Warnock and Schatz uh, out there that would require state communities to at least report back about efforts they're taking to expand housing affordability in order to get these grants. The problem with these is they often descend into sort of bean counting. Uh, the the uh, was it the affirming for affordable uh, affordable housing act or fair housing act and it ends up in this sort of racial bean counting that how many uh, African Americans live in your community, how many Latinos, and so on. Uh, rather than actually doing anything about the root cause uh, of the segregation, which is simply bad housing policy. So if that's our understanding of what the feds could be doing, which is essentially quit subsidizing cities that engage in restrictive housing practices, certainly the the really fertile ground ought to be at the state level. Uh, Mike, you've worked on this project on California, uh, homelessness and poverty and opportunity for uh, some time. And California, which has, you know, (laughs) traditionally at least really very restrictive uh, housing policies, uh, at least has taken a couple of steps in the right direction uh, in the last couple of years. Well, it shows you how bad things are in California that it counts as progress when they're actually passed legislation to allow duplexes to be built uh, in many areas. Uh, that, That that's a big step forward. Uh, the legislation actually is is not bad. It would allow uh, duplexes in, in any area that's most areas that are currently zoned for single family only. And it actually allow f- up to four on a lot because you could split your lot as well. The problem is it deals only with the the sort of on the face zoning of single family versus multifamily. Uh, it doesn't address any of the other tricks that communities use to keep multifamily housing out. So you still have setback requirements. You still have minimum lot requirements. You still have minimum floor plan spaces. You still have parking requirements and all these sort of rules and regulations that can be used to uh, to keep it out. One of my favorite uh, approaches was that uh, one wealthy community declared itself a, a wildcat sanctuary within the entire city limits. So to prevent any new building. That is quite amazing. Because of course you prefer wildcats uh, roaming the grounds of your community than you would other yeah. people who live there. Uh, so, uh, Vanessa, with you know, in terms of the big fat targets for making housing more affordable, for uh, allowing more diverse uses of property, what do you see? 
Oh, there's so much that can be done, but I really do think that it's going to have to be um, in order to make a real difference. Like Mike sort of alluded to, you're going to have to have a big plan, a big proposal. It's going to have to go beyond um, even, you know, upzoning the state for duplexes, which is sort of California's SB9 model. Um Unfortunately, with zoning regulations, zoning and land use regulations, they're sort of umbrella terms for all sorts of different building codes, use regulations, density regulations, design regulations. You know, there's historic preservation regulations and there's process issues as well. Um, There's so many different veto points Um, particularly in these restrictively zoned and regulated areas so that at almost any different point in the development or approval process, somebody from some committee can jump in there and say, hold up, no, we can't, we can't have this building because, you know, because shadows or because, um, you know, neighborhood character (laughs) or whatever the argument may be. So, There's just um, sort of a plethora of different things that will have to be addressed. I think it does require a return to some idea or view of property rights, which we don't have um, at this point anymore. Um, And, you know, giving people back that ability to make decisions about their own property in a timely manner and not have to go through the 30 part review process or just discretionary approval process that um, many cities have sort of decided is is part of developing or changing anything about your property. We may be seeing the first cracks in the wall, though, which would which would be good. Uh, SB nine and 10 out in California. Uh, I was talking to some local uh, activists out there about the day or so before the legislation passed. And they all assumed it was dead. Uh, it, it had died, uh, I think, five or six times in the legislature. They they didn't believe it would pass. And lo and behold, it did uh, on a bipartisan vote. So there's possibilities there. We're seeing Oregon making some uh, changes on a statewide basis. Minneapolis, uh, some other places beginning to look at this. Uh, there, there really is at least some discussion of the need to allow it to, uh, to be easier to build housing. Now, that faces a huge huge uh, status quo uh, bias that, that the population has. And and uh, let's face it, in, at least in California, NIMBYism, not in my backyard, should be their state motto. We've talked about California uh, and, uh, Mike, you mentioned Oregon, but a lot of other states have largely not two dissimilar policies to those in uh, California and other states. The main difference is that not a whole lot of people want to move there. Uh, so are we, you know, California did this because they had to other states aren't there yet. So are, are we likely to see, you know, 20, 30 years down the road, other states having to grapple with this problem or are they going to get out ahead of this? Well, many of these states we can see are in sort of the same boat that California was in 20 or 30 years ago, uh, when it was building more housing than its population growth. Uh, but that's now switched over and it's gone the other way and that's beginning to have consequences. So we're seeing the, these things beginning to happen in states like Florida, which have high population growth and yet fairly strict uh, re- uh, zoning regulations. North Carolina is another one. 
uh, where they make it very difficult to build, but people have been moving there for some time. And now you're beginning to see the property, uh, the, the residential prices and rents rise uh, accordingly. And uh, they're beginning to find shortages of affordable housing, at least in high demand areas. Oh, yeah. If you don't mind me jumping in, um, you know, rents are growing in all 50 of the nation's largest metros. Um, and year over year rents have grown in all 50 of the nation's largest metros. And Places in the Sun Belt um, have grown the fastest. Um, I think the fastest growth has been in Miami and Tampa, Phoenix, and Las Vegas. So some of these places that have sort of glided by to this point in time, they're really starting to feel the pinch on rents. Um, you know, Miami was up 30% uh, year over year, which is just, I mean, an enormous, um, you know, enormous amount of pressure on rents there and Tampa is close behind and Phoenix close behind that. So I think some of these places are going to have to start to get serious about their, uh, you know, housing supply issues, whatever things are preventing them from building. And obviously there are, there are pandemic related issues, there are labor shortages, there are, um, you know, the cost of construction for materials uh, like lumber and steel and other materials um, has gone up over the past couple of years substantially in some cases. Um, and so there are some existing problems there that are not uh, easily mitigated by a zoning change. But I think um, zoning reform and housing supply issues, wherever they may be, are just going to be front and center um, over the coming years here as a result of all the pressure on rental markets. Before we close out this discussion, uh, you know, I have friends at the Better Cities Project. Um, Nolan Gray is a regular uh, a guest on the Cato Daily podcast. He has a new book out coming out soon called Arbitrary Lines. Um, and uh, the economist Ed Glazer, of course, has done a lot of work on this as well. Give me a sense of what kind of economic development uh, and growth that communities and states are leaving on the table by having these kinds of policies in place that are restrict the ability of people to build and live where they want. Well, um, you know, there's there have been various different estimates out there um, in terms of economic development and growth. I know that one of the papers, one one major paper that was released, it's probably been five years ago or so at this point, um, by Dan, Danny Shoag and Peter Ganong, um, found that regional income convergence had declined across the U.S. I can't remember the specific numbers. Maybe Mike can jump in and um, remind me. But Basically, because people aren't able to sort themselves to the locations with the greatest amount of opportunity and the highest paying jobs, um, they, they have been held back as a result of that. They're living in places where they are not matching with the highest opportunity um, jobs and the best opportunities for themselves and their families. And it's a result of these the high cost of housing, um, which is a result, of course, of very restrictive zoning. So, um, so I think that the the consequences of these restrictive policies really are 
enormous. Yeah, I couldn't give you the numbers either, but talking to a lot of business groups, uh, chambers of commerce and so on in various states, they all raise the issue that economic, that labor mobility is a huge issue for them, that they need to be people to be able to move where the jobs are and they need businesses to be able to locate in various places along the supply chain that make the most sense for them. Uh, and those things uh, can't be done uh, if you can't have affordable housing in those areas. If you're the new trying to set the new Amazon campus or the new Microsoft campus in an area, you're going to be bringing in a whole lot of employees. You can't have uh, $800,000 be the average price of a house like in California or $3,000 be the average price of a one bedroom apartment. Those, those sorts of things are impossible. You know, I mean, your workers simply can't afford to live there. All right. We're going to close it out right there. Mike Tanner, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, and Vanessa Brown Calder, the new director of the Cato Institute's Opportunity and Family Policy Studies. Of course, you can read all about these issues and listen about these issues at our website, cato.org. The Biden administration had an opportunity to end tariffs on solar panels and other goods to produce solar energy, but Biden instead extended those tariffs. For Americans who want to produce more solar energy, the message might as well be tough luck. Cato trade policy analyst Gabriella Beaumont-Smith details why those tariffs need to go. So in 2018, President Trump imposed tariffs and tariff rate quotas on solar cells and solar panels. Um, and what are solar cells? Solar cells are the part of solar panels that convert sunlight into electricity. So the tariffs that were imposed are what are known as safeguard tariffs, and they are imposed under the guise of of preventing uh, or remedying serious injury to the domestic industry as more import competition arises. And Trump set these tariffs on a schedule over four years, starting at 30% in 2018 and ending at 18% in 2021. Now, this week, these tariffs are supposed to be expiring. So President Biden can choose whether to extend them or whether to do nothing, and we will have these tariffs no more. So you're telling me that any day now, Joe Biden could announce something to render this podcast useless to my audience. Is that basically <laughs> what you're saying? No, because there have been reports that uh, President Biden will maintain these tariffs. The USITC, the International Trade Commission, um, put out a report in, in December. It was a 586-page report that promoted maintaining these tariffs um, for another four years. They would leave them at the, the current rate, 18%, for four more years and would slightly reduce the tariff rate. And I really mean very slightly, something like 0.25 percentage points. Um, and the problem with this really is... These tariffs have not helped to safeguard the industry. 
The domestic manufacturing industry in solar has said that they need these tariffs to create jobs in America, but that hasn't happened. In fact, we've seen a loss of 6,000 jobs um, since the, the these tariffs were implemented. So they're just not even doing what they're supposed to be doing. So there's little point in maintaining them. So what was the uh, the, the Trump team argument for uh, imposing them in the first place? You know, we, we there are a variety of reasons that uh, administrations or Congress would impose a tariff. You know, I, I remember uh, not fondly uh, George W. Bush on his way out the door imposing tariffs on French cheese. Uh, and uh, I thought, well, that's that's really pointless. And it's clearly punitive, right? There is no roque for industry in the United States. And uh, in, in Trump, it seems a lot of the tariffs that that he imposed, they seemed more punitive than they were uh, industrial policy. Joe Biden seems more like a guy who would engage in tariffs as industrial policy. Is that about right? I'm not sure that I would say these tariffs in particular are punitive. President Trump liked to use tariffs to illustrate that he was being uh, protective for the American industries. And I think that's what we are seeing here with these solar tariffs. The U.S. solar industry has been struggling for a long time. Um, but I think part of the reason why that has been the case is because there are so many bad policies in place um, since before Trump's term. In 2012, the uh, trade dispute began with China in the solar industry um, that resulted in retaliation um, from China's behalf. And it's been an absolute mess. And then Trump came in not only by imposing these tariffs to safeguard the industry, but the other tariffs he imposed have also affected the industry. The Section 301 tariffs on Chinese products uh, have affected the industry. The steel and aluminum tariffs have been particularly impactful because both steel and aluminum are vital components for producing uh, solar cells and solar panels. So there's just so many avenues that President Biden could be taking to resolve the issues that the domestic solar industry is is feeling. Um, and I think a he should go much further than just removing the or or not maintaining these 201 tariffs, the safeguard tariffs. He should also be removing the Section 232 tariffs, the Section 301 tariffs. And given that it's so important to President Biden that he wants to help improve uh, the environment and climate change, um, he should be removing tariffs on on environmental goods. The U.S. is a is a leader in environmental innovation, and there are actually very high tariffs on on these products. So, if the U.S. removed those too, that would really help President Biden reach his climate goals. Gabriella Beaumont Smith is a trade policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Overdose death rates have grown exponentially and reached historic highs in the 51 years since President Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs. Scholars at the Cato Institute have long supported ending the war on drugs, 
In de-escalating that war, Cato's Dr. Jeff Singer hosted a conversation on fresh approaches to overdose deaths involving Oregon Democratic's Representative Earl Blumenauer and Dr. Carl Hart, ZIF Professor of Psychology at Columbia University. Safe injection sites, as you know, are a proven harm reduction strategy. Uh, they've been reducing overdose deaths and the spread of disease since the late 1980s. Uh, they operate through much of the developed world, including Europe, Canada, Australia. But here in the United States, the crack house statute makes them federally illegal. We now know that the, the Biden Justice Department is considering maybe accommodating them, even though the previous Justice Department was threatening prosecution when a group in Philadelphia wanted to establish a safe consumption site. Uh, even if we decriminalize drugs, if the Drug Policy Reform Act were to pass, wouldn't that require separate legislation, such as repeal of the crack house statute, if we're going to allow uh, an effective harm reduction like safe consumption sites to be able to function in the United States, Congressman? Absolutely. Uh, we've got uh, Watson Coleman moving on the specifics of a bill that would help in terms of this. Uh, but we knew the, the crack house statute is a manifestation of what uh, Trevor uh, was talking about. I mean, this is insane um, in terms of the uh, magnifying the impact of prohibition, distorting people's behavior, and not being able to deal with them directly. I appreciate the effort, the reference to what happened during prohibition in terms of all the people who were poisoned by uh, clandestine alcohol. Uh, it is apparent that the the re political reaction in terms of trying to make it harder to deal with needle exchanges, to have uh, uh, medication that reverses the impact of overdose. Uh, these are uh, sad, misguided political responses that make the situation worse. Uh, I long for the day where we're able to have a reset um, as your, uh, my other fellow panelists have been talking about. This is what we would do in a rational world. You don't have to look very far at what's happening in Washington, D.C. to understand that we're not in a rational world. Uh, a lot of this is counterintuitive. A lot of it is destructive. Um, you would think that our experience with prohibition ought to have made that point. Sadly, the burden of this has fallen uh, wildly disproportionately. Uh, I, I really appreciate uh, Dr. Hart's research and his passion because he's correct and taking us back over a hundred years of history. Uh, it ought to be clear. It is clear to me. It's increasingly clear to the American public. Uh, the need is to break through the political shackles but I think we're making progress. That's why we've moved uh, in terms of cannabis, why we're trying to broaden the conversation with psilocybin, but to be able ultimately to talk about the impact of prohibition and its failures. Um, I think the American public is with us. Uh, I'm hopeful that we're gonna have the patience to be able to move this through the political process, but not too much patience. People ought to be outraged 
about what's happened uh, in terms of the, the failure and the people who paid the price. Uh, I'm pleased in a small way to advance this uh, in Congress and to be supportive uh, championing efforts in Oregon. Uh, but uh, we need to have a sense of urgency to be able to deal with the facts as presented by my colleagues, uh, because that's the only path forward. Is there a way, to, time for me to squeeze in one more question for you, Congressman, and then before you, I know you have to leave, and then uh, Carl Hart could follow up with, on that. It's about uh, diamorphine, also called diacetylmorphine. That's, uh, that's a, a very effective opioid that's on the formulary in much of Europe, Canada, the UK, um, but it was, for reasons that I have yet to figure out, was banned in the United States because it had a brand name called heroin. Um, and uh, what do you think about the idea, at least in the short term, of getting heroin moved to Schedule Two, so that at least it could be used, because we know it has a medical use, and this way it could be used for heroin-assisted treatment programs, uh, which exist, again, in Canada, in Switzerland, and many countries in Europe, because in some cases, methadone is for some people, methadone doesn't work and heroin does. Right. Well, I'm ambivalent about that. It might, uh, it, there, it would uh, be helpful uh, with uh, the reschedule, but sadly, uh, I think the real need here is to just completely abandon what we've done with the scheduling system and go back dealing with something on a rational basis. Uh, going to schedule two, um, might help in the short term, but I think it's just kind of masking the problem we've got with a system that is really irrational and not particularly productive. Uh, and it's delaying what we need to do with the larger reset. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, Carl, would you like to comment on that? And I know that the Congressman has to go. I really appreciate you having you, taken the time at your busy schedule to be here. You know, you know, Jeff, I think uh, since we have the congressman, it might be helpful to like ask him about his expertise in terms of what might the American public do better to um, support uh, his, what he's doing in Congress and in order to get these changes. I think being able to continue what we've done in cities around the country, what we've done in states around the country, where we go directly to the people, bypass a lot of the experts bypass the legislative process that can be captured by people who have a punitive and narrow-minded view. I have tremendous confidence in our being able to take this message to the public. That's where we've been making progress on cannabis. That's where we're making progress in terms of decriminalization broadly. Um, the people get it. The people understand uh, the power of uh, what you've reported on in your writing and your research. And I think ultimately it's the people that are going to rescue us uh, from uh, this uh, continued uh, insanity of the war on drugs. Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Carl Hart is the Ziff Professor of Psychology at Columbia University. And Earl Blumenauer is a Democratic U.S. Representative from Oregon. Discussions of qualified immunity focus almost exclusively on police. What about when public school administrators clearly violate the rights of students? 
Should parents of those children be able to hold administrators accountable in civil court? For the Cato Daily Podcast, I discussed with Chris Kemet of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund a bizarre and troubling case of a teenager strip-searched by school administrators two times. With respect to constitutional rights, what do we broadly expect that the public sector owes to the private sector? I mean, I think that what we expect is that the public sector adheres to the Constitution, that the Constitution means what it says, and that public sector employees are obligated by it, are bound by it, and when they violate the the rights of other people as set out in the Constitution, there has to be some sort of consequence for that. Okay, so in the the context of police, uh, police who violate Americans' rights are rarely ever charged with crimes, um, uh, and in this case that you're dealing with, what do uh, teachers and school administrators and public schools in general, uh, you know, how does that differ from when we talk about in the context of police violating rights? You know, I think that when people think about the Fourth Amendment and they think about invasive searches and seizures or even qualified immunity, like the police are quite fairly the first the first kind of group of folks that um, that spring to mind because they are the most likely party to be involved. But school officials are bound by, you know, are bound by the Fourth Amendment, just like police officers, just like police officers are. And uh, qualified immunity can impair plaintiff's ability to collect damages from school officials when they violate their rights, just like the same thing happens with police officers. So really, they're, even though they're not school officials aren't who we think about as being in this position. Like, they still have um, same ability to violate, you know, kids' rights as any police officer does. Tell me about this case that your group handled at the 11th Circuit. Sure. So we represent a 14-year-old eighth grader, or we represent a plaintiff who was 14 years old at the time of the incident. So 14-year-old TR was at school. She was in uh, an agricultural classroom, and the teacher smelled marijuana. So they emptied all the kids out of the classroom. They searched the backpacks of all the kids in the class. And in TR's backpack, the teachers found some marijuana seeds and stems that led them to think that she might be the kind of source of the uh, marijuana smoke that they smelled in class. So she was taken to the principal's office. And based on this kind of general suspicion that maybe she had smoked uh, marijuana in class, they thought she might still have a half-smoked joint on her. Uh, at this point, nobody had said they saw her um, smoke, you know, smoke a joint. They hadn't searched the classroom to see if the joint was in the classroom, which it was. Uh, instead, this principal and uh, guidance counselor decided that what they needed to do was strip search 14-year-old TR. So they had her remove all of her clothes standing in front of an office window that was open into a corridor into the school cafeteria. So if there were students there and school was still in session, they could see right in. They had her lift up her breasts, bend over, uh, and inspected her for whether or not she had a joint on her. And then it gets even kind of wilder because they realize that there are no drugs on her. And so they resume kind of questioning her. Her mom and her sister show up. And then before they're allowed to leave the school, the school officials decide that they need to do the very same thing again. So again, even though they know now that she has no drugs on her, they have her, you know, stand back up, 
take her clothes off, uh, lift her breasts, and bend over. Um, even though she's never left the room, the officials have been there with her the entire time. So they literally know that they are not going to find anything. And they just conduct this completely needless and unreasonable second strip search. So what did you ask the court to provide as relief or to, to do to make amends? Sure. So TR sued the school officials through her mom, basically seeking damages for a violation of her Fourth Amendment rights and for um, some various state law claims, including something called outrage, which is otherwise called the intentional infliction of emotional distress. And this was done by a law firm that we uh, partnered with on the appeal called Maxwell Tillman. So they brought this lawsuit seeking compensation for the violation of TR's rights. But a judge in the Northern District of Alabama tossed that lawsuit on summary judgment, which basically means he didn't even let it go to trial uh, and said, you know, even if you prove all of these facts that you laid out, that doesn't basically get around the hurdle of qualified immunity. Like qualified immunity demands more than what you've given me so far. There just hasn't been a case that looks exactly like your case. So you lose, you're out of luck. And at that point, uh, I work at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and we got involved at that point with the appeal and took an appeal up to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the federal appellate court that covers Alabama and some other states. So what did the 11th Circuit say? The 11th Circuit said basically that the district court had dropped the ball. So the 11th Circuit said that, in fact, the school officials had violated TR's Fourth Amendment rights, that they'd done so in a variety of different ways. So, for instance, they said that they didn't have enough suspicion to make her do a strip search in the first place when they started it, um, that they went way too far in terms of the scope of the strip search. They shouldn't have done it in front of an open window, that the second search was obviously unconstitutional, um, that she could proceed with her state law claims, too. And because this is a qualified immunity case, they had to find that all of that constitutional law was clearly established at the time of the search, and they did that too. The Supreme Court appears to have a pretty clear, not just a lack of interest, disinterest, anti-interest in taking cases like this one. Uh, do you suspect that this one would be any different? Usually they're police cases. This is about school administrators. Do you expect the Supreme Court will view this any differently? You know, I mean, we're certainly hoping that the Supreme Court doesn't take it since we prevailed in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So at this point, our primary interest is, uh, is you know, hoping and praying that the Supreme Court stays away from it. The Supreme Court, has, I mean, has has definitely exhibited an interest in really closely enforcing qualified immunity and taking cases, um, you know, that don't kind of create uh, or don't implicate serious legal problems, uh, like most of the cases they grant just for the purpose of reversing qualified immunity cases. So I think that that's, you know, something that could always uh, happen in a qualified immunity case. I hope it doesn't in ours. I think that the 11th Circuit's decision stands like really solidly on the law. So I'm not sure that the that the Supreme Court would want to, you know, pick our case to reinforce the idea of qualified immunity, but I can't see the future, so I guess we'll wait and see. Has uh, the NAACP taken other cases that uh, that implicate qualified immunity? We have. We have. So the Legal Defense Fund, where I work, has, we have a qualified immunity team that does qualified immunity litigation among public education and some other things. So in the past year, we've taken 
six different cases in the federal courts of appeals. So we've taken six cases on direct appeal that are either decided or at various different stages of litigation. We file amicus briefs. We've joined Cato, in fact, in um, some cross uh, ideological amicus briefs at the Supreme Court. Um, we do amicus briefs on our own. So we do uh, we do a bunch of qualified immunity litigation. It's kind of a point of emphasis for us. So what do you, what do you hope is the in the final analysis what occurs with this doctrine that Cato's Clark Neely likes to point out, wholly invented by the Supreme Court, flips some federal uh, civil rights legislation effectively on its head, giving people almost no recourse to uh, hold public officials accountable for violations of Americans' rights. What do, you, what do you hope ultimately is the disposition of this doctrine? Oh, that's easy. The Supreme Court should get rid of it entirely. If the Supreme Court doesn't get rid of it entirely, Congress should get rid of it entirely. If Congress and the Supreme Court fail to get rid of it entirely, every state in the country should use the powers that it has under its state constitution to make sure that people can bring the same sorts of constitutional challenges under the state constitution uh, and ensure that those state challenges aren't blocked by qualified immunity so that police officers and other government officials don't get away scot-free when they you know, run roughshod over people's constitutional rights. Chris Kemet is deputy director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Liberalism challenged the old order of caste and class and developed a new way of looking at the world. And that vision needs a movement to defend it. Cato's David Bowes stressed that need at a Cato Institute Policy Perspectives event in Naples, Florida. Some people think being in one place for 40 years shows a lack of ambition. Um, I had about five jobs in the few years before that, and... I discovered that when you find the right place, you might as well stay there. So I've been thinking about these kinds of issues for a long time, and my assigned topic today is why we need a movement for freedom, or as I sort of title it in my own thinking, why we are here. And when we say why we are here, the answer is first, because it's really, really cold in Washington, colder than it's been in years. So being in Naples, that's good enough reason to be here instead of there. We're also glad to be here because we're just glad to see people again, to be with people. Um, it's been two years since we were able to do one of these, and we're glad to do it again and glad to have so many of you uh, willing to come out and join us. But more importantly... We're here because we love freedom. And a few years ago, one of my colleagues said, you know, people at Cato are always complaining about things, complaining about politics, complaining about the loss of freedom. You don't actually talk much about freedom. What is freedom? So today, I want to talk a little about freedom before starting in on my complaints. Freedom is a big idea, been developed by great thinkers over many years, but it's also something that people feel in their bones. Every one of us can imagine what it meant to cross through the Berlin Wall from freedom to unfreedom. 
We can measure freedom in reports like the Human Freedom Index and Freedom in the 50 States. There's a new edition of that just out, and Florida did very well. Not quite as well as New Hampshire, as you'll probably hear later today, but very well. But those measurements don't capture what it means to take freedom from an individual. The individuals know what it means. We know the names of some of the people who felt the loss of their freedom. Nathan Hale, Frederick Douglass, Sophie Scholl, who tried to oppose the Nazis, Rosa Parks, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. But we work for the freedom of people whose names we may not know because we do know the centrality of freedom to our lives. And we should remember that much of our life is free. We make thousands of choices every day, thousands of interactions with other people from our own choice. We are not regulated, we are not controlled, we are not managed in making those choices. Freedom gives meaning to our lives. It allows us to define our own meaning, to define what's important to us. Freedom means respecting the moral autonomy of each person, seeing each person as the owner of his or her own life, each person free to make the important decisions about his own life, to think, to speak, to write, to create, to marry, to eat and drink and smoke, to associate with others as we choose. Freedom is the foundation of our ability to construct our lives as we see fit. And it has good consequences for society, not just for each of us as individuals, but for our society. First, social harmony. We have less conflict when we have fewer specific rules about how we should live whether that involves religion, dress, lifestyle, class, caste, or schools. When we put those things in the government's portfolio, then we have to fight over who makes those rules. When we leave them to free choice, we don't have to have those fights. And second, particularly, freedom produces economic growth and abundance. In a free economy, people have incentives to invent, innovate, and produce more goods and services for the whole society. And that system, imperfectly followed in the Western world, has taken us from backbreaking labor and short lives to the abundance we see around us. As people like Steven Pinker and Deirdre McCloskey and humanprogress.org are always reminding us. So, for a long time, it wasn't that way. What changed the world? What happened about 300 years ago to transform our world from 10,000 years of subsistence living to steady progress? Scholars disagree about a lot of the details, but it certainly includes freedom, the opportunity to use our talents and to cooperate with others to create and produce, with the help of a few simple institutions that protect our rights. And the ideas, the institutions, and the innovation are interconnected. One way to look at it is that liberalism came into the world. And it's important to remember that we are liberals. We have to say classical liberals now to make it clear what we mean, but it is liberalism 
that challenge the old order, the order of power and status, of caste and class, and developed a new way of looking at the world. An understanding that, you know the words, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. We are the heirs of John Locke, Adam Smith, Mary Wollstonecraft, John Stuart Mill, William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass, Hayek and Rand, and Friedman, and that's an important heritage. Liberals changed the world. After millennia of backbreaking labor and short lives, many of us may have read in our uh, college classes that the noted scholar Karl Marx recognized how liberals had changed the world. He said the bourgeoisie during its rule of scarce 100 years, because he was writing around 1850, has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. What earlier century had even a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered? Liberals built the modern world of human rights, open markets, and constant progress. And as new challenges to freedom and progress arose, liberals turned to confront them. They fought socialism, fascism, military dictatorship, apartheid, theocracy. And whether those challenges were said to come from right or left, they all sought to replace the rule of law with the rule of some men over others. You know, people rarely think of libertarians as moderates, but as the two parties become more polarized, usually in the wrong ways, Democrats are becoming more tax and transfer, more socialist, not more civil libertarian, Republicans becoming more nationalist and protectionist, not more free market, libertarians may find themselves in a new center of people who are uncomfortable with both those extremes. And around the world, with left-wing autocrats vying with ethnic national autocrats for power, classical liberals defend the broad center of peaceful and productive people in a society of liberty under law. And part of our job is to give those peaceful and productive people a clear philosophy and policy agenda. When I was doing interviews about my book, The Libertarian Mind, a few years ago, I regularly said, libertarianism is the idea that adult individuals have the right and the responsibility to make the important decisions about their own lives. In fact, you may recall a bestseller from some years ago, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And I like to say, you learn the fundamentals of libertarianism, the fundamentals of freedom, and the fundamentals of civilization in kindergarten. Don't hit other people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. And if we follow rules like that, we have a free and abundant society. But too often, those aren't the rules they live by in Washington. And that's part of why we're here. Thomas Jefferson said the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. 
In so many ways in our country, power has tended to flow from the people to government, from state and local governments to the federal government, and from Congress to the executive. I also learned when I was a boy about Smokey the Bear's rules for fire safety. And as I grew up, I realized Smokey's rules for fire safety also apply to government. Keep it small, keep it in a confined area, that's pretty much what Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution does, and keep an eye on it, and that's kind of what we do. So how do we do that? What do we do? Well, I'm not going to just go through a list of books and studies and conferences and TV appearances. There are a lot of those out there on the tables if you want to pick some up. But I want to talk about some of the ways that we try to move the debate, move the dialogue, and ultimately move policy in a better direction. Some things that aren't so obvious. For instance, we give academics a platform to reach a broader audience. A lot of great scholars burrowed away in their, in their offices, in their classrooms, in their academic journals, but not really having a broader reach. And we try to give people a platform. One of the first scholars we worked with like 44 years ago um, was uh, Earl Ravenel, who was a scholar at Georgetown University of Foreign Policy. He was a critic of America's global interventionism, world policing uh, policy. But he's teaching it to his students at Georgetown and writing in academic journals. And when we discovered him, we said, let's get these ideas out. Let's get them into op-ed pieces in the Washington Post and the New York Times. Write a, a, a short book that people around the country could read to understand what we're doing with our foreign policy and the mistakes of it. And I would say one of the key things that Ravenel talked about was where the defense budget actually goes. Is it for defending the United States? Is it for defending the Middle East, Europe, whatever? And one of the things he said was, you know, the second largest item in the federal budget after Social Security is NATO, the defense of Europe. And we ought to debate whether that's a good idea, whether that's a good expenditure of money. And I will say, after we spent four or five years promoting Ravenel's work, people in Washington knew what the cost of NATO was. Now, that didn't cause all of them to agree with Ravenel that that's too much, it's not worth it, but it did mean that they were better educated and they had to defend that idea. A second person around that same time was Richard Epstein, whose name many of you know as a great legal scholar. But at the time we started working with Epstein, he was a scholar who wrote for law journals, and obviously not many people actually read law reviews. Bob Levy may have read a few, but I doubt anybody else in this room has. But Epstein had a book coming out that basically argued that almost everything the federal government does is not authorized in the Constitution. And we grabbed hold of that, and we made him a much better known figure. We arranged a lunch to start with, and some leading journalists in Washington came to it, and then we organized a, a bigger sort of debate lunch, and uh, we had him speak at events. And really, I think the work he did, along with our Center for Constitutional Studies, changed the way not just legal scholars, but judges looked 
at the role of the Constitution and the role of judges in protecting liberty. I could go on and on mentioning other people. I'll mention one other person, George Selgin, a scholar of monetary policy at um, the University of Georgia, left the University of Georgia, came to Cato, and a year or two later, he's being touted by a top Wall Street Journal reporter for the Federal Reserve. Now, neither president in the past few years wanted somebody as insightful and original and critical as George Selgin on the Federal Reserve, but the fact that Wall Street Journal writers were taking those ideas seriously meant that there's been a change in the way we think about monetary policy. David Bowes is executive vice president of the Cato Institute. Start your workday with a dose of liberty derived straight from your inbox. Cato Today is a daily email briefing of the Cato articles, studies, and multimedia commentary on the news that is driving the day. Sign up for Cato Today and all Cato Institute newsletters at cato.org slash ecommunity. That'll do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.